What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Hey pod people, Engineer Adam here, jumping in for a quick second to let you know about the brand new all-in-one platform for all of you creative podcasters out there. Anchor makes it easier than ever to make a podcast. It's free to use and has all the creation tools you need to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Plus, Anchor will get your podcast set up on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are found. Even better, Anchor helps you connect with sponsors, even if you're just starting out. It's the perfect choice for podcasters, so make sure to check it out. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Back to the show. Do you read Stephen King? Good news. There's a club for you. The Losers Club. And guess what? You don't have to die at the hands of a shape-shifting clown to join. No, all you have to do is tune in every Friday as us losers journey through the never-ending wastelands of King's Dominion. Each week, we'll either spend hours reading between the pages of one of his books or chew on his latest tweets and Hollywood headlines. What's more, we're always having guests over. Thomas Jane, Mick Garris, Jerry O'Connell, Mary Lambert, Will Wheaton, and the list goes on. So what are you waiting for? Join us as we read on through long days and pleasant nights. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome, welcome, welcome to This Must Be the Gig. Thank you for joining us for another week in our ridiculous deep dive our dippy dive into the world of live music and live performance and you know here we are in another week episode 10 and if we take a quick look back we've already heard the most outrageous stories and discussed incredibly nuanced ideals of hopes and dreams and there's just so many exciting things to look forward to but the most important thing is the right now hello adam Hey. There's your segue. It's my my it's my <laughs> classic catchphrase. Engineer Adam here. Engineer. Hey. hey, how you doing? I'm doing well. I can't believe we're ten episodes in. No boy. Boy, what a week too. Can my favorite episode be all of them? Absolutely. There's only ten, so you are allowed. We hit our peak and top cap ten, at eight. Top ten episodes. Can you imagine when we get to eleven? Yes, I can. I can. Can you imagine when we get to 100? I can. I can't. I can. By that time, we'll all be in flying cars. and. So let's get to today, because today is today. And what's with today? Today. If anybody gets that reference, you get a free 
Best friend. Best friend. Today we've got a mashup that involves a lot of the letters T and M and B and G. <laughs> yeah, we have T M B G. T M B G on T M B T G pod. Whoa! Surviving 36 years in the game by charming the hoo haws <laughs> off of your multiple generations across multiple genres and multiple musical tastes. John Linnell from. They might be giants. <laughs> Seriously, this is a band also with another man named John, John Plansburg. Generally, people will know them from their theme songs that they wrote for Malcolm in the Middle to the SpongeBob SquarePants Broadway musical and the super nerdy, lovable Birdhouse in Your Soul. The They Must Be the Gig crossover. <laughs> yeah. This chat with John will drop you into the most exciting part of their career, I think. He gets a real chance to look back and rack his brain, whilst also talking a little bit about future things. But we talk about Dial a Song, which is their toll-free number, 844-387-6962. I've called that number so many so times. So many times. And today they will be releasing a new one. Today? Today! Hey! You can call it now to hear a new song every week. And I think it is the most beautiful endeavor. And it is a band that really cares for our insatiable need for instant gratification. Even that of the little children. Exactly! The most insatiable, needy people for instant <laughs> gratification. They got them covered too. They are giants. Giant hearts. A giant fan base and a lot of giant love right here from This Must Be The Gig. This is a great chat and we are very excited for you to listen. So we are going to shut up now and let you be great. Please enjoy. Here is us. Goodbye. Suddenly, you know, home, and I mean, we have a lot of work here at home because we're still feeding our dial-a-song machine, uh, trying to write, desperately write uh, high-quality songs yes. from our home studios. But we're not on tour now, which is a tremendous relief because mm. it, we were, we were, it was a pretty intense tour. And the weather's gotten really good in Brooklyn. You've been there for a really long time, right? But you didn't grow up in, in New York. I was born in New York and lived there till I was eight Oh. And then my family moved out to Massachusetts, where I met Mr. Flansburg. And then as, I guess, 20-year-olds, we moved back to New York. Uh, he was going to college, and I was uh, moving with, a, with a, another band that I was in. So I've spent my entire adult life here in New York, uh, here in Brooklyn. There was a period of, in my teens when I was living in the suburbs outside of Boston, but I feel I feel like a New Yorker. Yeah. What what is a New Yorker? Cuz like everybody has a different experience and different yeah, connection no, to I, the I city, know. you know? Exactly. And and this is a long-standing tradition probably anywhere, but like if somebody showed up after you, then they're not legitimate, but you are. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. that's kind of the general rule. 
you know. So you are legitimate. Is that what you're saying? You are the OG. The OG um, no, only <laughs> only compared to the people who showed <laughs> Dude, up. Come after on. <laughs> like the people who came before me, I'm not legitimate. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I like that you say that you're finally home now. But how are those spaces in between touring? How do you ever stop and take a moment and take it in, or do you just go on this crazy ride and then go back home? And oh, you know, hope for the best. I think. I think. Yeah, I think for for. For the band members, we, we don't. We have it relatively easy. The crew have to get up and hit the ground running, um, you know, because our usual routine, at least in the United States, is we sleep on a bus, and then in the morning we are in the next town, and everybody gets up. And yeah. for the band, that means we can get up and goof off, basically. But for the crew, they have to pretty. They have to start work at around noon. So they have, they have a pretty much of a full time gig, and we have it we have it a little easier because we don't start we don't sound check until five p.m. So what do you do between the, the space? What do you do whilst you're waiting? Yeah, it's changed a lot, and also everybody has their own routines. Some people sleep well on the bus. I don't. So yeah. when I've been on the bus, I actually don't sleep particularly well at night, and then I need to go find somewhere to sleep in the morning when we arrive because I'm just still exhausted. Flansburg, on the other hand, yeah. sleeps extremely well on the bus and can just sleep, you know, as long as much as he as long as he needs to. So he, he tends to spend a lot more time on the bus than I do. And I know that a lot of people that I've spoken to and, you know, artists over the years, they say like you pray for a good bus driver just to make it as smooth as possible, <laughs> you know, and you get like really close so you yeah. can bribe him and things like that. <laughs> that is part of it. Although we fun. also have to pray for good, good roads. Cause yes. it, I'd say that's the worst factor. It's just like if the highways got potholes, uh, it does no amount of good driving is going to help you. And um, some people like our Dan Miller, our guitarist will wake up when we go over rumble strips or something with the absolute certainty that he is spending the last few seconds of his life contemplating <laughs> death. Um, and, you know, he's always surprised and relieved when he doesn't, when the bus doesn't crash, <laughs> which it never, which it never has. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure it never has, but I mean, it can happen. I quite like that. He has that uh, impending doom, just uh, like teetering all the time, just in the corner yeah, of his yeah, mind. Yeah. I'm sure that makes you feel incredibly calm and relaxed having that energy next to you. Like I said, I don't sleep well, but I'm not terrified that we're going to crash. I'm just unable to sleep. And so I wind up doing things like I watched, you know, there was a tour where I just watched all five seasons of The Wire. Oh, man. Um, because there was wow. literally, I was like the middle of the night, everybody else is asleep. And I'm just sitting in the lounge on the bus with nothing else to do. So that was one tour, you know, and I found other stuff to do. How long was the recent tour now? Because now you're on a little bit of a break. It was sort of like three legs. So it depends on how much you connect it all up. I would say this tour began about halfway through January. We did about a month and then we had a little time off. And then we were out again in March and then off again and then again in April. Now we're just doing a couple little one-offs. So it's just trickling just a, yes. few, a few little drips now for just for the end that we can actually get in our cars and drive to 
like we're playing in Lancaster, PA. That's so wonderful. stuff like that is, is, is way less sleep depriving. In terms of just moving from place to place and how a little bit disorientating that is, how have you been able to feel comfy in that all these years of touring? Well, you get you certainly get used to it. I mean, it's something it's so familiar now. Well, for many years, I brought a bicycle on tour. So I did a lot of biking during the day. And that was great, actually, because that sort of kept me a little bit more healthy. And um, mm. it's an interesting way to see a place, you know, you get to some city and go explore on the bike. So that was fun, you know, uh, but I haven't done that in quite a while. Well, we're doing a very, for us, like more exotic tour of Europe in the fall. So we'll be in places we've been, we've never been to, for example, to Antwerp. Oh, amazing. Or certain other places like that. We used to tour yeah. in, in, in Europe quite a lot in the 90s, but there are still places we've never been. And it's just, it's fun to be somewhere that's uh, that different. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think that there's something really transformative, of course, about traveling in general, but getting to do that with the art that you make and then meeting people in that context, I can imagine it's incredibly rewarding. If you have the impulse to be a tourist, it's actually a yes. good way to see a place because you will meet people you wouldn't otherwise meet because you're also working. But you can also go to museums or do whatever touristy thing you would be doing if you were if you were not getting paid to go there <laughs> yeah it's fun and it's I, I really appreciate the fact that we've been able to do that for you know many decades yeah and how how things change so quickly as well around the world especially if you're going to new places that you've never been to that can create a whole new excitement around a new album and a new tour which is something sure, I think yeah, that's so absolutely. necessary. You know, you you got to find it interesting as well, which not to say that touring can get stale, but I can imagine... Oh, it could. It absolutely... Yeah, it's, it's sort of up to you to keep it interesting, I think. I mean, I've certainly been guilty of having those days where I only see the inside of the club and not much else uh, and the inside of a hotel room. You get energy from just pushing yourself and going out and seeing stuff. And then you, and then you, you know, you, after the fact you remember like, Oh yeah, I went to that weird museum. <laughs> yeah. It's worth pushing yourself. Yeah. It's like a little travel size, nostalgic thing that you can put in your pocket and have with you. Exactly. That newness really creates something inside of us all. So I think our really heavy touring started probably in the nineties where we were doing a lot of, press as well so and then, i mean this is the thing that fills up the day is like you do press in the afternoon and then sound check and then show and pretty soon the day is sort of filled up you know i have friends who are authors and they do book tours and i'm i was actually kind of shocked to learn that a lot of these a lot of the way they organize book tours is like there is no time off you basically no. get up early and start doing you know press and book signings and stuff and that takes up i mean i thought like oh it would be it would be easier in a way because you don't have any gear you're just mm. arriving at a bookstore that already has copies of your book <laughs> yeah. but i was shocked to find out how like how much work it is to go on a book mm. tour i was like wow you know i thought this writing was an easy racket. <laughs> anything but but i mean can you imagine like how many little bookstores there are and how many how many elements and moving parts there are in that world as well yeah and i guess the whole point is your publisher's desperate to like desperate yeah get as much out of the, out of you as they can while they've got exactly. you so they 
completely fill up your schedule. I speak to so many different people in so many different industries. And the truth is that they say when they are on tour or any aspect of a project that's at the beginning phases where they're having to promote it, there's these lapses in time where they have to fill the space with things. So if they aren't inclined to fill it with healthier things like riding their bike around the city, they will usually go to a bar and drink, you yeah, know, yeah. smoke a joint in the morning and then just kind of be high for the rest of the day. And that's all sure. good and fine. But obviously, you are numbing yourself to a lot of the experience. It is scary thinking how many people do turn to that, you know, just to bide time. Yeah, yeah. There's boredom and then you turn to things that can make you feel a little bit more buzzed. I think that probably there's a you know notion, if we'd started doing this when we were younger, we were already in our late 20s when we started doing full-on touring as a band. Uh, so we, I suppose by then we were sort of grown up enough not to think there was something glamorous about, that there was something right. automatically glamorous about being on the road and that getting fucked up on drugs yeah. or whatever was part of the glamour and that, you know, that that was, that was something, you know, almost that was expected. It, there's a kind of self, self-hypnosis going on about about oh, yeah. what, what you're supposed to be doing as an as an artist you know and i mean the other thing is maybe it's just like who john and i are it's like mm. we're we we are not huge partiers really we, we we really like writing songs and playing them and that that was the always the appeal for us so a lot of performers have told me that they can't perform without it you know, because they did yeah. start when they were too young and they, they felt the pressure of, you know, being completely outlandish and crazy on stage and needing that pick-me-up. So yep. you guys never, ever really got into that because you were a little bit older and a little bit wiser, essentially. We, we yeah, we drank a lot of coffee. I think that was, that was <laughs> basically how we, how we would power through a show if we were otherwise not feeling up to it. It's yeah. Like, and we still drink a lot of coffee. You know, I mean, we're we're old people now, so it's it's old. we have to be a little little more careful <laughs> about how much we push ourselves. Wait, you're we're not having old to, to adjust. You can't you can't agree with that your own statement. I'm like, you can't agree. Well, with I mean, that. I'm just I'm just talking in, in rock terms. Like are, <laughs> yes. John and I are both pushing both pushing sixty. Yeah, and and also we've been doing this for a so long for a kind of unreasonably long time. Like I think <laughs> most bands at least do themselves a favor of breaking up at some <laughs> point and, and having a little vacation time where they're doing some painting or something. Yeah. And we've just been going continuously since 1983, pretty much, wow. and touring since 1986 uh, without without really having a break. It's so extraordinary when you get to look back at that and get to kind of quantify it into this glump. You won Grammys, you, you've done completely different albums, you know, with different concepts behind them. You know, there's so much. I suppose the job is to figure out what's the interesting part of it. You know, like it's not obviously not just a list of crowning achievements. It's what is it we really doing and what are we motivated by? And I suppose like, you know, you could take away all the other stuff and just say we we really like writing songs and Mm. performing them. And, uh, And that was always the motivation. It's sort of the one big change that happened was in the late 1990s, we started doing other stuff besides the regular album and touring cycle. We started Mm -hmm. doing commercial work. We started doing stuff for movies and TV and kind of got in a way got over our own fear of that diluting 
what we were doing in some way. So that that sort of expanded the whole project in a way that's still going. We just had a song and a musical, and so we're you know we're 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 still kind of trying out different stuff. And in other words, we established that the core of what we're doing is this making albums for grown-ups mm. that <laughs> yeah. are very personal, our personal songs that we we that sort of have their own logic and they're not written for a client. And then we've been able to go from that to doing a lot of stuff that would be probably a lot less satisfying on its own for us. And having that foundation is important, you know, knowing exactly what you're doing it for. But It was for us. Yeah. It certainly was for us. I feel like we, we, did, we really didn't feel enough, a strong enough sense of our own identity to start doing TV commercials right off the bat. I think other people might be perfectly happy to do that, but we were we were sort of uptight about perceiving ourselves and being perceived as something other than this thing. Mm. You, know? you sometimes in different phases of your career aren't ready to diversify into different things. And the fact that both of you have done it in such a natural way, it's not been condescending in any way. It's not been forced or pushed. I know that you said you make songs for adults and you also, of course, have material for children that's right they both could fit either or you know you you certainly don't make only oh, music yeah, yeah. you know so i think that's it's so that's interesting true, yeah. i think when we started doing kids music we had this notion that we could continue the spirit of what we're doing for adults i mean i think there was this maybe perverse impulse that you might have to feel like you you have to educate children or that it has to be somehow nutritional and we 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 quickly got over that and we were like we you know we just want to be entertaining and be interesting in the same way that we've tried to do for adults so, so that was kind of the idea it was like yeah it could it could actually be in some ways some of the same slightly sick ideas that we can can be can be if they're as long as they're appropriate for kids you know mm can be just as interesting and, and fun for kids to experience. You have this kind of responsibility and it's a kind of privilege in either aspect, making songs for grown-ups or making songs for children. You have a responsibility to do the listener service as well as yourself. Yeah, no, no I agree. And I agree with the privilege part. Is, is, yeah. To me, specifically, the privilege part is that kids are way less prejudiced in a way so you're you're if if you can successfully communicate with kids, you can be the one introducing them to this or that Absolutely. idea, and that's something you don't get to do with adults. Kids are much more open-minded, and they're and they're and you can really affect the way they appreciate culture and stuff by giving them something good. And they're just moldable as well. So everything that's, you know, you can, <laughs> yeah. you can mold and shape them. Although, of course, their little brains are growing faster than ever now because of everything that they can potentially be exposed to. I suppose I was just thinking when you were talking now, no... And I suppose here come the ABCs. Those are a little bit lighter in theme, you know, than the other kind of adulty counterparts you know they're still very uh -huh, very weird yeah. you know which is the greatest part of it i think i was thinking of that one song where you sing from the perspective of a broom fed up with sweeping which i love so much there's this uh -huh. real heart in there that i don't that it, but it is because you know you're observing as an artist for your own music 
So to bring that into right. the world of children's music, it just on paper, it seems kind of strange, but it logically makes sense because you are just observing and in a different way. Do you find that you get the same thing from both or do they feed different parts of you? Well, I wouldn't say they feed different parts of us, but I think the process is subtly different. You know, we, we're a little more self-conscious maybe when we're doing kids songs that, that it should be in a way sort of more, I don't know, maybe honest is the word. Like, I think there's something fun about going down a weird rabbit hole when you're writing songs for adults where it might wind up in a, in a disturbing place. And part of that involves thinking something wrong. You know what I mean? Like, I think mm-hmm. there's, there's some, there's some songs we've done in the past where the lyrics are deliberately like, well, I think of a, there's a song we have where one of the lines is people should get beat up for stating their beliefs. For an adult, you get that it's the person singing it is not, is a sort of fictitious person, right? That's the idea. And also it's a, an abhorrent idea that people should get beat up for stating their beliefs. But it's a song that makes people laugh, even though maybe they don't know why they're laughing. Yeah. Know. I'm just trying to think what's so, is that the shoehorn? Shoehorn with, with, shoehorn with teeth, teeth. teeth. Yeah. yeah. So the point is, this is the kind of lyric that works for adults because it's working on some complicated level mm. and everybody kind of kind of gets it. I think they know it's not actually mean spirit yes, in the way that it sounds. It's, it. it's more yeah. like it's in quotation marks. So and then the thing with children is you can't really resort to that type of rhetoric because they don't have the ability to process process stuff in the same way. So you have to be a little straighter with kids, I think, Mm. in the same way that when you're talking to kids, they might not know you're being sarcastic or... (laughs) Yeah, they don't know the nuance. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They can't pick that up, which I, that's why I right. love children, because I think that being truthful and straightforward is, maybe that's yeah. just my culture. I come from, obviously, South Africa, as you can hear with my weird accent, um, and we are, we're are South very, Africans more, um, very, are they more, are they more uh, straightforward? I think there's like a pointedness to your intention behind an interaction, so there's never, it's kind of like a Middle Eastern, it's very similar in a way of, there is a genuine kindness and friendliness, there's never an underlying I feel like a lot of American culture, and I'm experiencing this firsthand because I just moved here a year ago, but American culture is very, either nothing is said or too much is said. So I don't really sometimes know where I stand, you know? I don't know if the person's being genuine. No, I think that's... You know, I don't know if that's... That's right. Part of my experience is like going to Britain and seeing there's a... I would say in some ways like an equally funny rhetorical mode in Britain as there is here, but it's just different. Mm. And so that people get their wires crossed <laughs> yeah. in ways that, you know, <laughs> that Americans tend to understand one another's sense of humor mm. and are confused by sometimes by the British version and, and vice versa. Which makes it very, you know, confusing sometimes, but also if you can get to cross over with your art, especially and speak to a lot of different people from a lot of different walks of life, I think that that's the, that's the goal, right? Is to have that kind of general through line. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. To broaden your, broaden yeah. your mind, absolutely. But yes. how many children do you have? I have one. Okay. How, yes. old, how old are they? He's 19. Oh, my gosh. Um, okay. 
I know. So he doesn't listen to your... (laughs) 19. Oh, my gosh. That is prime spot. That's a good... (laughs) It's a good age. Uh, It's a bit scary. Yeah, it's scary. It's It's difficult to be 19. Yes. But it's a good age for me to have a son who's 19 because he is tuning into culture in the way in a way that I'm sort of no longer doing. Mm. So I'm, I'm actually able to access stuff that he's interested in. And he's very, he's very enthusiastic about showing me stuff he's excited about that oh, I would so never ever have known about or picked up on. So this is kind of a great benefit for me now is like a lot of new music that I hear about is through him. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course he's, he's got his own perspective and it's, we don't completely agree on, on what we like. But, um, <laughs> no, that's good. Then you get to learn. You, you can learn from each other. I think that yeah. that's so important. There's like something about, well, it's ironic, obviously, because you're family, but there's something about, you know, not, not connecting on certain things that creates that conversation. That's right. What is the most recent thing that he shared with you, though? I'm like, I need to know about this, too. He well, I, I, I hate to say this, but I, I don't have a long list of stuff. But <laughs> yeah. um, I did have this, I had this funny experience where, we were doing a radio show, you know, mm-hmm. we were invited to come and play songs. And I just, I never have a lot of stuff of my own, but I played something that he had played for me by an artist named Neil Cicerega, who's a young person who I found out later was actually an, an early day, might be Giants fan, uh. which probably makes, makes a certain amount of sense. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I played this thing on the radio and then it somehow got back to him, Neil. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had said, oh yeah, my son played me this. So he then tweeted out, Oh, thanks, thanks, John Linnell's son for uh, <laughs> blah blah blah. Which then my son, who's a big fan of this guy, was reading his Twitter feed, and his mind exploded because <laughs> he uh, he was being spoken to directly by one of his one of his, one of his, yeah. Uh, his idols. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, so he said that that made his week. Yeah. Does he think that what you do is? unbelievably cool like does he know does i wouldn't he... say that I, okay I, I don't think or are you still yeah, his dad I, I doubt, strongly doubt that it's unbelievably cool <laughs> i think it's maybe maybe reaches cool at some point <laughs> occasionally but we are not his favorite band you know we're probably in the top 10 Gosh, um, I would hope of so. his favorite bands which is headed up by you know the beatles on, oh, on the number one slot you got so some I, tough I'm, competition yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm content to like take a back seat. <laughs> That's true. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. So did he ever when you were starting out creating the albums, you know, specifically tailored toward children, did he did you play those for him at all? He heard them. Yeah, yeah. No, he he heard yeah. them and and obviously he didn't have a choice. He had to listen <laughs> to them. But uh I think he was sympathetic. I think the thing about my son, and I think the sons and daughters of people who do public stuff, mm-hmm. is they have a different relationship with you, obviously. And it maybe wasn't the same thrill for him to watch us perform as it might be for just a, a random person who's a fan, because he is used to a direct personal relationship. To me, he doesn't necessarily want to watch me mm-hmm. on a stage performing in front of a bunch of people because I mean, he, he's fine with, he's, he's, he's come to see us play a lot, but it doesn't mean the same thing to him. He's, he, in fact, when he was very young, I think it confused him because I was not paying any attention to him. Mm -hmm. I was just paying all my attention to doing the show. 
and I think maybe that felt a little disorienting and and sure. weird for him. Did you take him on tour? Is was that something, especially the tours that were in close proximity to? No, to home? He, he he would he would visit on okay. tour. For example, we did a bunch of shows in Texas, and my wife and son just came and were visiting, staying with friends in mm-hmm. Houston while we did the show. So I was seeing him, but he wasn't actually coming to every show. Because uh, it's it's not a, it's not a nice thing to go travel each and every day to a different city if you don't have any other reason to do it. I think yes, you need like an agenda. Age. Yeah, absolutely. You need a you need a reason that can service you as well, not just not just seeing you know your family. Yeah. But that's the, I mean that's good that he came when he was young. I think that that's something special as well to have your family close to you. Maybe just from a selfish point of view for you it's to nice have for them. me. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was fun for me. What were your parents in? What were they doing? How did you, because I know that you started when you were so young. Were they? They were, you know, they were sympathetic. My dad was a big fan. He, you know, he, he, he really liked, he really liked the show. And my mom was not much of a rock fan, but I think she saw that I was in some ways doing something that interested her, which was because she's interest. she was interested in, in poetry and literature and so she felt like I think that my lyric writing was continuing something that she she liked and she was interested in uh but she was not she was not hugely into the music so they you know they were very supportive but you know I think they saw that I was off on my doing my own thing and when you were younger was music always something that you really loved I liked music and I I liked uh drawing I think John Flansburg and I had similar kind of arc which is we probably started out doing visual stuff like mm. drawing john actually went to art school you know so his thing was he was actually a visual artist and he his first jobs were doing layout for magazines and stuff like that and i was probably more interested in music early but i think i've always tried to be kind of you know i tend to spread myself around i still mm. take pictures I do, I do a lot of photography oh you so do that's still a big thing. Yeah, yeah. That's wonderful. I mean, I think people forget that there are other ways to get creatively satisfied. And sometimes oh, when yeah, you yeah. do land up finding a niche that is, you know, going to put you in the public eye and get you noticed, sometimes there's that pressure to carry on with that. I think that some people naturally are very committed to one particular one discipline. One particular discipline, yes. And, and I think they're yeah. kind of, they're kind of, in a way, that's kind of a good thing because they can really focus on that thing. And I maybe I'm sort of like a little bit ambivalent and I like the thing of having some other thing to do that's not my job, you know? So I, so maybe for me, I think it's partly just like, oh yeah, there's no pressure when I'm doing some other non-music thing. It's like just purely goofing off. Um, and I am a big fan of goofing off. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of genuine love in in just having that no pressure attached to something that you're interested in. You know, I remember speaking right. to speaking about like an artist who also takes photographs, Chris from Blondie. He obviously has been documenting their life for years ever since they started, uh-huh. and he also mentioned that he w- he wishes that he had just one thing that he loved. You know, but unfortunately, for him. 
he needed all of those different things so that his brain could be could function properly you know it was like that was the mode for his brain to function tell me a little bit about I suppose the first concert you ever went to or maybe the one that maybe sticks out so not necessarily the first one but something that yeah sticks yeah out. I, I actually I thought you might ask that question so I I, um, <laughs> I, I came up with it I oh, hope not did. it's not too canned answer okay. but um my first concert was not all that interesting but mm. there's one that particularly stuck with me that I still think about all the time which was seeing when I was young I saw the guy who the, the frontman for Perubu, David Thomas, did a performance in Hoboken, and it was after he—I guess he was taking a break from Perubu—and he did this really unusual show in Maxwell's, that club in, that used to be in, maybe it's still there, I don't know, uh, in Hoboken, and it was with two people, two other musicians, one of whom played the—I think—played the drum, as I recall, and the other mm-hmm. was someone who I later became friends with, Garo Yellen, who played the cello. And it was the most emotionally fraught and weird. It just took a really strange turn where basically David had kind of a meltdown on stage. And years later, Garo, the cellist, told me the story of what happened, which was that, um, and I was, you know, I witnessed some of this. Mm -hmm. People in the audience were kind of heckling them. And they were doing a very unusual performance of, you know, these very odd, not, I would say, not sort of really rock-oriented songs, but just sort of sea shanties and odd, you know, odd little performancey things with this with this unusual musical configuration and all of them looking very, very deadpan. Yeah. And it's just the vibe was very weird. And finally, somebody started heckling David Thomas, and he eventually just freaked out and was started yelling at the guy and then he stormed off stage and then after they were off stage the audience started this like little encounter group where one group of people were yelling at the guy who was heckling and then the guy and his friends were defending themselves and this became a whole strange thing and then eventually David came back on stage and (laughs) he just looked very like someone had poured cold water on his head and yeah and uh and he he finished the set and it was it was really energetic and really tense mm-hmm. super nervous and strange and but i mean somebody he's somebody i respect who was doing really interesting stuff and the music i thought was really good but the vibe was just it was just the weirdest show i've ever seen and I mean, I loved it, and it it made it got me deeper into that kind of stuff. How old um, were you? But, Do you remember when? Because I mean, oh yeah, no, I was in my early I was in my early twenties. Okay, and, uh, yeah. God, that yeah. sounds it was so not strange. Anything close to my yeah, yeah. I remember reading something about. I think it was a year ago. He did an interview, and they asked why he's been doing this for so long, and he was just like, yep. "I refuse to give in." There's this, like, <laughs> you know, refusal to this, like, yeah, stubbornness. Yeah, yeah. The fact that he came back. Yeah, you know, that, that is nuts. He didn't give up. Yeah, I mean, I love that. Obviously, it can be so disheartening, you know, as an artist. But I suppose your fans are very understanding and they love you. So I don't know if you've had that on a first-hand account. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I, you know, I, I think we're, the funny thing is I think we do we do feel tons and tons of support. But we also feel like, 
this pressure not to let everybody down. You know? Of course. So not that they would turn on us or anything. I really don't think, I think they'd probably be, be a little bored if we did a <laughs> show that wasn't that good, but they're, mm. you know, but the vibes, I mean, there's obviously a ton of built up, built up a lot of goodwill. Uh, so generally I feel secure, but, but we still are, you know, John and I both are constantly concerned that we not turn in a bad show. I think, you know, then it gets harder every year, obviously, mm. like we're, we're trying to, we're doing our best here, but you know, we, we, we want it, we want it to be as good as possible. And it's, it's uh it's a real it's a serious job. We take it seriously. Well, you have to. I mean, even if there's both equal amounts of doom and joy in some of your music, I think that you have to continuously make sure that there's that balance, that you are inviting new listeners as well as making the people who've been around for so long make them as comfy as possible. I guess there's a balance with both. Yeah. But I'm sure you don't have that as your goal. It's not like you make an album and think like, yeah, we're going to get new people on board. You know, I'm sure that that's not your. <laughs> oh, you know, we're not we're not totally calculating, but we are. <laughs> try, we're trying to get people to like us and come back. And, you know, obviously, like, it's nice when people show up, but we really need them to come back, somebody to come back again the next time we show up. So it's it's partly a thing of. It's great when you sell out a show, but then you still have to keep make it a good make it a good show. Your music also has to fit a certain space. I'm sure that you are calculated in terms of knowing where to book the shows. You know, I'm sure that yes. each, each well, city... we leave that to the we leave that to the geniuses who uh, who are booking agents. Yeah, who figures it all out. Um, but yeah, he's 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 done good by us, and and the other thing is, I think John Flansburg, the hardest working man in They Might Be Giants, <laughs> is constantly working on uh, social media. Doing he's okay. very 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 on the case with if a show is it seems like it might not be selling well, he will do a huge job of like promoting it personally. You know, he's he's really dedicated to doing that. So that's a big that's a big factor as well. Yeah, how's your relationship to that all? How do you feel? Do you feel comfy with social media and and connecting in that way? I I don't. I mean, I'm not. I don't have a I don't have a Facebook page or anything. No, I don't have a Twitter feed or anything like that. I'm I'm totally fine with you know. I mean, I, I it's nice to talk to people and you know fans and stuff, um, but I'm not really needing to have a big engagement online with people. I mean, and I think it's nice, also nice for the fans if they feel like they can post a question and get it answered, you know? There's that instant good. gratification. Yeah. I mean, yeah, just... I think those are good things. So we do that, you know, we do Q and A's and stuff like that. That's all good. But I don't have a, I don't like, I don't have a constant feed or, a, you know, a social network <laughs> You're not connection. In. Yeah, I mean, that I'm sounds not. like heaven. I'm not going to lie. That sounds like absolute <laughs> heaven. <laughs> I'm very envious. There's a pressure in, in that as well, of course. There's so much. Uh, but so so many... you feel like you feel like professionally you have to you have to Absolutely. maintain all that. Absolutely. Yeah, and yeah. I am, we don't know each other very well, but I am the type that like, I am so tactile. If I can't like see and touch and hear and smell a person, you know, and talk to them, I feel very disconnected in my own thoughts, uh -huh. in the conversation, right. everything. I, I feel like I don't know their heart. And so having everything mm -hmm. online 
and all these anonymous faces and so much, so many opinions, you feel right. very bogged down by the weight of it because there is this pressure to have an opinion and have a strong one at sure. that, you know, because you've got to stand yeah. out, which is so... How strange is that? Do you feel like you have to be witty as well? Or maybe that's not a South African... Uh, no, it totally thing. is. I mean, we're funny. No, we are funny. But we also have this... Okay. I mean, we were a colony, so we... British colony, so we have British humor. But I think there's definitely a pressure to be as authentic as possible from my end. But I know that that's not the goal for everybody else. So I feel... Sure very shitty if I can't be honest and real, but I know that that sometimes doesn't sound or translate as well. Weirdly enough, I was actually thinking about this the other day, how travel writing has become such a phenomenon because now that we're able to take a photo and upload it instantly, the world is kind of much smaller and much more attainable. It's the same with music, I suppose. You can just make music and put it up online and it's sure. easily accessible. So that whole like instant gratification thing is quite scary. Well, I suppose the job of travel writing is to curate that mm. information, right? So you're not just saying, oh, here's a picture of London Bridge. Yeah. You're selecting your information and making it personal, right? And that's, that's, the, that's the job. I think there's a lot of pressure to shift that and have your foundation be, oh, I want a lot of followers, you know, I want a About, lot of eyes yeah. in my work. Definitely, I'm just too sweet. I'm too too kind. I, I don't want to. I don't want to rock any boats. And well, there's plenty of other people who will do that job. For exactly, don't, don't <laughs> so I don't have to do it. I wanted to just also talk about the first "There Might Be Giants" tours that you guys did. When did you meet John? Did you start making music together straight away? We met in elementary school. Uh, oh, we met in. in okay. uh, we met when we were probably 12 or 13 or something. And then I gradually got to know him in high school. He was not really um, playing music at that point, And I, I was just starting. And so we gradually both got more interested in music. And, but I should say, you know, we did, we did sort of creative projects together mm -hmm. before that we, we were drawing comics and we both worked on the school newspaper. So there was a kind of shared interest in doing creative work generally. So it formed very gradually. We both moved to New York, you know, in our early 20s. And I was playing in a different band and John was doing, he was in art school. And I guess what happened then was that we, I sort of was burned out on the band I'd been in. And John and I started doing recording and songwriting together, but not in a very formal way. Mm. And that gradually took shape and at a certain point we thought well this is a thing we could do we could put together a little performance it wasn't you know it wasn't a career move it was just a fun idea like it just one idea led to another we made a cassette tape and we got friends interested in seeing us perform and then we pressed uh, one of these plastic flexible seven inch records that oh, you used cool. to see yeah. in, in magazines we found out where to send away to make one of those. So we, we made that, and that became a sort of promotional item. Our cassette sort of got some attention. It, it actually, weirdly, the cassette got reviewed in People magazine, which I still don't quite understand why. Um, but it was just this strange, lucky thing. That was in the early, middle 80s, in 1985. People magazine. That's, that's yeah, so strange. Yeah, People magazine. I know it was it was inexplicable, but it led to um, 
us getting a, an actual record deal with an indie label. So the next year we put out a piece of vi- an actual final LP, and then that, then we started touring and all that stuff. Um, Do you remember the first show that you played that you ever played? Oh well, it depends on when you start counting. But yeah. we we John and I did a show in Central Park, and it was for a friend of ours was working with the uh, coalition that was promoting the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, mm-hmm. uh, the, the FSLN party, uh, who were still just starting out at that point. And she said, oh, I, I got you a gig. And it was very weird and, and unlikely because we were just playing for mostly people who didn't even speak English. Yeah. Uh, but we got up there and we I, you know, had an electric organ and John had a guitar and we just sang some songs. And it was, I think people kind of enjoyed it, but I, don't, I think no one was exactly sure what we were doing there. Did you enjoy it? John and I were very nervous. You know, we, mm. we, we never, we never performed in public before and certainly not in front of strangers. And so it just felt like a really nerve wracking experience. But, you know, after it was over, we were kind of high fiving each other and feeling like <laughs> we'd done it in some sense. And, yeah. Accomplished uh, that first one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know that the Pixies opened up for you at a phase when they hadn't released their album yet. That's right. Yes. No, that it was before their album came out. They 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 had recorded it. Yeah. They recorded it and they were talking about the experience, but they hadn't um it hadn't come out yet. How crazy is that? Especially to think of the trajectory of their career as well and how yeah. that band formed and, and moved and shifted over the years. I find it interesting because the current, uh, you don't have an opening act. We currently don't have an opening act. Uh, that's true. We're doing a sort of an evening with They Might Be Giants show. In some ways, I think we, we've done a lot, a lot of shows with other bands on the same bill. And it wasn't always established who was the headliner. But I guess in that case, we were a band that had a record and had had been touring and stuff and the pixies were unknown mm. um but they were very very friendly and we struck a friendship with uh, Frank Black that we've you know we're still still in touch with him you know he's still somebody we see uh, occasionally on the road and and um yeah it was a really kind of one, one of those nice serendipitous things where we just got to see them as they were really uh just out. just yeah. kind of putting their putting their whole thing together and they got to see you when you were, you know, a fully formed touring band. So that's also quite interesting from their perspective, I can imagine. I have no idea what they thought of us, except that <laughs> Charles was a big booster of ours. You know, even mm. even after the Pixies got well known, he was he would always say nice things about us. Is there a band that you've toured with maybe when you first started out that you felt that you learned a lot from? I think we did. We, we, we met artists early on mm. that were, you know, this would be a similar kind of thing. Like we met the guy, Chris Butler, from The Waitresses mm. early on when, again, you know, it was before we had a record out and we were just doing some Tuesday night slot at CBGB. And he was very friendly and very sympathetic, and he did material things to help us. Like he he uh, gave us the loan of a drum machine and uh, stuff like that. So you know, we yeah, we met we met other artists who were nice and friendly. You know, I think it 
I think the scene isn't always nice and friendly, and there's there's not necessarily automatically camaraderie between bands. But we felt like you know there were there were certain artists that we were, we, you know, we toured with Perubu as well later on. Oh, you did? Um, and oh, wow! Yeah, and they and that was a that was great. We actually we actually enticed David Thomas to come sing <laughs> with us um, oh, no as way. part of our set, and you know That's we just incredible. did we did kind of a free form freeform jam part of our show and he came up and sang did he know that you had been to one of his shows back back in oh the i day? don't know i don't know if i ever discussed <laughs> that with him uh i can't remember i definitely talked about it with garrow that's so great and obviously i know that the camaraderie is is difficult because everybody's on the road and you're doing your own thing but is there a kind of memorable performance that you and john have had like you looked out into the crowd and you were like mm. This is this is it, you know. This is this is really the moment. <laughs> it's hard to single out a particular show. Of course, I think. yeah. I'll bet Flansburg can think of something. But um, <laughs> when we were starting touring, we had shows where we were feeling overwhelmed by how appreciative the audience was, and it was it was memorable how insane it was. Particularly in 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 sometimes even in the Midwest or in or in like. Madison, Wisconsin, places like that, where the audience was so enthusiastic and so happy that it kind of, you know, we were floored by it, but we were sort of nourished by it as well. Uh, and we've definitely had many, many years of doing those kinds of shows. We still do. We've just been super lucky, I guess. Yeah, I think, and that's important to acknowledge as well, because it's difficult sometimes to have that perspective when so much is happening. What's a time when something went profoundly wrong on stage? <laughs> oh, there's been a lot of amusing you know, examples of that. It's, it happened actually, in some minor way, it happens like, you know, every other show that something, something stupid really? happens. Like what? Um, sure. You know, something doesn't work or falls over. Or you forget the lyrics or something like that. Uh, and then there have been more dramatic things. Like we did a show in 80s in, um, I think it was the 80s, in, in um, Milwaukee. And the audience sort of jumped up onto this like apron uh, and started dancing. We're playing a polka. And it turned out to just be this very flimsy covering for the orchestra pit. So the whole crowd just fell down into the pit which was only a few feet lower than where they were but it oh, was gosh. like yeah it could have been a lot worse i guess and seeing that from stage is i can't even that must have been it terrible looked really to see. weird yeah it's just <laughs> the whole crowd have fans that have been following you for a long time do you know some of them like do they come to multiple shows yes well we have as i said like we talk about the front row and there are many, many familiar faces that show up. That's um, wonderful. For you know, particularly in regions of the world, like in America, there's a particular front row. Mm. They some of them travel surprising distances. And then when we go to Britain, there's people there that you know, it's like, oh, there they are, it's <laughs> them again, you know. Uh, um, so yeah, there's 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 people who are pretty uh, pretty loyal. Do you have a weird weird fan story? Somebody who perhaps has done something that you thought was outrageous? We've had we've had crazy fans. Um <laughs> and, and some of them are, you know, like clinically crazy people. Oh who, gosh. Yes. It's not a good it's not a no. good it's not a funny story. It's like somebody with a problem. Um mm. so we've had that 
and then there have been sort of mildly crazy or inebriated people, mm. and that's a more common thing. And often it involves somebody yelling at the stage during a show who is under the misimpression that we're having a dialogue with them. You know what mm. I mean? Um, they have this. They apparently are unaware that we're actually trying to do a performance, and they're they're talking to us as though. Uh, we're just in a room together. Yeah, just standing that, that, on a different level. <laughs> yeah, a little different yeah, platform. Exactly. What do you do in those instances, though? Oh, you you know, it's in some ways, I mean, this seems mean, but it's sort of easy to make a joke out of it. And and the audience laughs and then hopefully the person settles down. Yeah, I, I think that it's so interesting to know that there are some diehard fans that have obviously followed you for all these years and they follow you around as well. So it's nice to have that familiar face in the front row. But then, you know, fans can get crazy. They can get unbelievably uh, unforgiving as well. If they don't like maybe a new album oh, yeah, that yeah. you've made. So do you get that kind of feedback? Like, do people, are, how open are they? There's some people who, yeah, as you say, like, they seem incredibly friendly and then they turn on a dime. They turn on you. Yeah. You're their enemy. <laughs> How has the new album been? Because obviously you released uh, I Like Fun and and I love how you started that with Let's Get This Over With. I think that that's just kind of That was perfect. our publicist idea. We, play, we played oh, really? her the songs and, she was, and, and our publicist was like, put that one on first. <laughs> and we're like, oh yeah, that's a, that's a good idea. It suits you guys to make that uh, <laughs> final statement at the beginning. I love that you've started the dial a song. I know you mentioned it earlier. You started the dial a song again. And I actually, so yeah. is it online or can you call the number still as well? It's both. You, there's ah. actually a number you can call, which I, don't, I haven't memorized, but it's on, should be on our website or promotional materials mm. somewhere. And it's, it's, it's the last seven digits are the same old number that uh, we used to have back in the, back in the eighties. Wow. Um, and then it's got a different exchange, a different uh, area code, but um, that's going and you can listen online and there's other, there's radio stations that promote, you know, we have the, they might be giants dial a song radio network as it's known, who will, who will play the current entry part of their show part of their programming you do this every week now so this is because it was yeah so it originally started because i obviously wasn't in america when it first started but so tell me how so the person could call the number and then they'd get mm -hmm. a song every week well originally it was it was they'd call you know any any old time and usually the songs changed once per day not to say that we had a brand new song every day but that yes. we would just rotate uh, so we had a big stack of audio cassettes next to the phone machine and we'd pull out <laughs> one and put in the other. And that's how it worked back in the day. I mean, it is totally uh, and, uh, delightful. I love that you're doing it again because there's something so personal about it. I don't know why there's something that it connects on a level that is so different to what that other was, artists yeah, do. Yeah, that was the idea. I mean, I, I don't know if it's as personal as it used to be, but... Um, but you're right. It's the notion is that you're calling us mm. and it's you. You're the one calling us. And so there's a kind of idea of a personal connection. That's that was the original thing was that you were if you called dial song, you were the only person listening because uh, it was just one phone line. And in, and in the very beginning, you could leave a message at the end. And oh eventually, we just 
ran out of time to listen to them all. Oh, no. But you got to, you obviously gave the people that, that opportunity. So they felt like they were needed as well within the whole project, which yeah. I think is important. And we got, you know, we got sort of, we got obviously some messages that were very uh, supportive and friendly and then some that were hostile and, <laughs> you know. Do you ever remember any of bag. those horrible ones? Uh, we we definitely got "Don't Quit Your Day Job." Oh. That was one of them. Thank you for wasting your time to tell me that. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. Like that's what the. It's crazy how people who say things like that. It's like you took the time out of your day to say that. You know, <laughs> it's kind it's, of. It's no different, as you know. It's no different today. There's like exactly. people on YouTube who. Oh God. Are spending a lot of time trashing stuff but you know it, that was okay and 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 then we we also got very friendly we got a message from the someone at the new york police department who, oh, no who identified himself as the nypd he said greetings from the nypd <laughs> we love you guys you know oh, that's so, so there was all sorts there was a whole range of stuff did you ever think of turning in some of those answering machine recordings and notes did you ever think of turning that into something because i know that you obviously included a cover of i know you did destiny's child i think it was bulls 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 and did do that, yeah. yeah so did you ever think of turning the fan almost into into your art yes we not <laughs> only did that we, we did it multiple times oh that's um, so cool yeah there were a number of songs plans i guess did, he did a song called I'm Deaf, which was mm. a sort of um, samples from the from a particular phone message that was pretty nuts. And then we had one very, very long incoming message from a woman who was on a conference call with somebody else. So instead of hanging up the phone at, at the end of the dial song, she and her friend spoke to one another for like an hour. <gasps> uh, and that was all recorded, filled up the whole tape. And, and it was pretty fascinating we we included about a minute's worth of it on um one of our releases so you can hear this woman talking um what were they talking about that is absolutely brilliant i love that they it kept was, they, it was pretty nuts that is she, nice she was she started talking about us and then she, and then she went off on some other tangent and i mean it just went it went on for quite a long time uh, so it wasn't, we didn't use the whole thing, obviously, but yeah, she was, she was kind of great. She's like this Brooklyn lady, <laughs> very thick Brooklyn accent, deeply curious about the world around her. You know, mm. that was the thing that was, we were struck by the most, like she is, she was really digging around and finding stuff that was completely outside of her own experience. And She'd obviously spent a lot of time doing that, and that's what she was wanting to talk about. You know, mm, that's a perfect moment where she that she left it on. Obviously, that and you got to be kind of a fly on the wall, and we were that. got to eaves. We got to <laughs> eavesdrop. Yeah, that was, yeah. <laughs> you never get that opportunity. I mean, other than being obviously, <laughs> if you were a creep, but that's amazing that it, it was about you as well. Yeah, no, no, it was wonderful. I would love to know about performing. Obviously, this particular album in knowing what you have done in the past and knowing what you still want to accomplish, what do you feel this tour really represents at the moment? Hmm, I haven't actually thought about it in those terms. Not to say that this is like any other tour necessarily. We have a section in the middle of our show where we're doing a very, you know, just a, a new and unusual thing for us, which is John and I are playing acoustic instruments and our drummer is playing 
an electronic drum kit and the, mm. we have a trumpet who a trumpet player who's on tour with us and he is part of that and this is you know kind of a little moment that stands apart from the rest of the show and i love that part of the show and um we're doing a show that has a break but for about 20 minutes in the middle so first half is kind of the regular rock show mm. and the second half begins with this semi-acoustic bit and then there's a big you know climactic ending uh so it's it's structured unlike any other show we've done up until now but it's you know it's us we're a six piece which Mm. we haven't we haven't toured in this configuration before we have a our regular band plus a trumpet yeah it's everything it's always new it's not that in a way not that hard to keep making it new like we just think of some way to do something that's completely different and, and somewhat challenging. And this has been a bit of a challenge, but it's it's been memorable. Why do you love that little moment so much, that, that having well, the trumpet? One, yeah, one reason is I get to play this new instrument uh, for part of it, which is a, it's a paperclip-shaped contra-alto clarinet, which is a oh, lower wow. instrument than the bass, bass clarinet. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's a very deep deep clarinet it's got a distinctive sound and it took me a little while to figure out how to incorporate it into the show but um there's a few songs on the new album that have contra alto clarinet on it uh so it just it feels like a new and interesting challenge and it's you know it's a hard instrument to wear on stage i'm hanging it around my neck and it weighs a lot but i you know just done a little bit of work of trying to rise to that challenge and, and but I'm fun. sure and, and yeah and taking on that new challenge after so many years you know of, of constantly evolving and doing uh, multiple different projects I can imagine now this focusing on something you know where it's down to a new instrument is incredible that you get to focus on that I'm sure bringing something new is as important to you as it is to your fans. I hope so. I hope it's, you know, I don't think the fans would necessarily be asking for it. Um, so there's, there's sometimes when John and I just have an idea and we insist upon it. And even though it's not necessarily a result of popular demand mm-hmm. might be flying in the face of popular demand, <laughs> but, um, that could be but, your, you know, your slogan. Yeah. <laughs> flying in, in the face of popular be. demand. <laughs> Do you have visuals? I just wanted to ask if you, because I believe that there is some beautiful undercurrent of how incredible the design and visuals have been surrounding your band. We do. Well, we have a, we have a projector, and um, the other thing we've been doing in the show is projecting this video, which I will tell you now. It's not no longer a secret. It is a. Um, it's a. The visual part of it is a music video from the 1980s of. Aerosmith and Run DMC performing the song Walk This Way. Oh, but, amazing. But the music is completely different. It's just a, a song that we wrote that exactly matches the movements and the lips <laughs> of the characters on screen, but is a completely new and different composition called Last Wave. Oh, that's so fantastic. Uh, How did you, when did you think of that? That's brilliant. I don't know. That you do that. It just it just came up. <laughs> I don't I know no where these thoughts come from. from. It just came. Have you heard back from the fans or do they go crazy when they see it? If they can see it, if they can see what's going on, we usually mm. hear we're backstage at that point and we can hear them reacting. And to me, that's very gratifying because 
if they can tell what it is, it can, we can hear the sort of gradual realization on the part of the audience that they're watching this video that they may be familiar with and that mm-hmm. this other song has been deliberately tailored <laughs> to match the video and people enjoy it. And, and, and so it's kind of gratifying to hear the shock of recognition. I'm sure. And just one more question. I wanted to ask if you have, I don't want to make you pick which song you love the most, but especially maybe pertaining to this. I'll do it. I will do it. I will do it. Um, If there is something, (laughs) perhaps maybe not favorite song as in your favorite, but maybe something that you love playing live, particularly, you know, for this tour. I I can answer both in one (laughs) one song. It's uh, the title track on the new album. Mm. is I Like Fun. I love the way the recording sounds. It was it came together in a way that made both of John and I pretty happy. Uh, the video is great. There's, a, there's an online video you can watch that is just fascinating and strange. And it's really fun to perform live because I get to play the aforementioned contra alto clarinet in that one. So that, yeah, I can say probably if I have to pick a song, the cool one i think that's it is that is that video the one with the animation i'm just trying it to is think. animated oh yes yes it's amazing yeah. i love that song yeah that's <laughs> so and also talking about youtube comments that's there's so many amazing comments on there about people speaking about how long they've been fans all of their different experiences i think that that's super cool that you get to bring that into this world you know that there's not just shitty internet commenters yeah well don't read too far down i guess um, yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, we get, we do get a lot of, like a lot of. Nice- This Must Be The Gig is produced by Adam Kibble, and we'd like to thank Billy Yost and the Kickback for our theme song, Rube, and buy their music at thekickbackband.com. Lexi Frame for the artwork, Daniel Brater and Dean Berger for the additional sound design. And the Consequence Podcast Network, where you'll find a bunch of other amazing shows. Hey! If you've listened this far, why not go the extra mile and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. Your comments provide valuable feedback for us and it helps other people find us too. For information on new episodes, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram at TMBTGPod and generally just irritate everyone you know about the show. Thanks again and I miss you already. Consequence Podcast Network.